This is Jan Swift, and you're listening to Discover Lafayette, a podcast dedicated to the people and rich culture of Lafayette, the gateway to South Louisiana. Our taping is made possible with the support of Raider, a hands-on IT service provider that integrates all of your needs for advanced technical support, effective communication options, and cybersecurity. Raider's motto is, you just want it to work. We understand. Please visit RaiderSolutions.com for more information. The generosity of Oxner Lafayette General also makes this podcast possible. As Acadiana's largest nonprofit regional health system with more than 4,500 employees, Oxner Lafayette General strives to prove that caring is their top priority. In continuous efforts to reach more patients, Oxner Lafayette General facilitates telemedicine services to schools, businesses, and government offices to make health care more accessible for everyone. For more information, please visit OxnerLG.org. Barry Ancelet, acclaimed Cajun folklorist, author, and songwriter, as well as founder of Festival Acadien et Creole, is our guest today. Barry served on the faculty of UL Lafayette from 1977 until his retirement in 2016. He was a professor in the Department of Modern Languages, serving as chair of the department and as the first director of the university's Center for Acadian and Creole Folklore. He inaugurated and taught the first course on Cajun and Creole music at the university. Barry has been a prolific writer on various aspects of Louisiana's Cajun and Creole cultures and languages. Under the pseudonym Jean Arsenault, he has written poetry in a number of songs, and we do need to hear about this, Barry, <laughs> that have been recorded by Cajun musicians such as D.L. Menard, Wayne Toops, Kevin Nockhan and the Austin Playboys, Steve Riley and the Mamu Playboys, Richard LaBeouf and Two Step and Jambalaya. His work, The Broken Promised Land, a 10-song CD created along with Sam Broussard was nominated for the Best Regional Roots Album Grammy. But we're here today to talk about something exciting, the upcoming festival, Acadiana et Creole, which begins Friday, March 18th. Barry Ancelet, thank you for making time today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Yeah. I'm, we were talking before we started um, taping. I knew of you. We've met. I knew your background, I thought. But when I started <laughs> digging deep, the amount of your work and the heritage of work that you're still producing, but that you're leaving for all of us is incredible. What a well, legacy. I, yeah, but you know, I, I, it, it wasn't like work. It ever. wasn't? No. My dad told me when I was a kid, you know, find something you really love to do and you'll never work a day in your life. Uh, I mean, I got paid to uh, <clears throat> to visit with people like Dewey Balfa and mm-hmm. Dennis McGee and Nathan Abshire and Canary Fontenot out there in the field and listen to stories and, and music and songs and talk about where they came from and how they developed and how all of this developed. And, and then take that information and turn it into um, uh, coursework and publications and you know I, I, when I retired uh, in my retirement speech I, I said that I was happy to be retiring before the university realized that I would have done it for free oh, that's beautiful though <laughs> you know did you always know you wanted to be a folklorist no, though no. how did you get into that I know you got your doctoral 
Want to hear the story? Yeah. It's an interesting story. Okay, so, you know, I grew up here, uh, like most of, the peop- most of the kids in my generation, Cajun music was something that was there, Cajun and Creole music. Uh, you know, we, we would glance at Aldous Roger playing on KLFY, <laughs> you know, on Saturday afternoons and stuff. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and then when, when Mama got to, when Mama got to uh, choose the records on our hi-fi system, uh, she listened to Connie Francis. Oh, and when yeah. Dad got to choose the records, we listened to Ira Lejeune, who was a Cajun musician from around Church Point. So, I mean, it's, it was something you heard. It was, but, you know, really for all of us, it was just something that was there. It was it, we considered it our parents and grandparents' music. And we were all interested in the Beatles and sure. and the Rolling Stones and Bob Dylan and everything else. Mm-hmm. And uh, did you grow <clears throat> up speaking French? I did grow in up, your in your I grew household. Up speaking French okay. uh, because uh, uh, my, my my paternal grandmother uh, spoke almost no English. Mm-hmm. My maternal grandmother spoke what she called English. <laughs> But, it, but was, it, was, yeah. it was really impro- improvised. But uh, all of my aunts and uncles and, and you know, cousins and, and, uh, and the people that in, in, in our orbit mm-hmm. uh, mostly spoke French. And they spoke French. They, a lot of them spoke English and French, but they spoke French when they were socializing. And right. so, you know, I would go with my dad to you know, bale hay and then we would go to the... Uh, to Webe's Lounge in Austin to have a Coke and everybody in there was speaking French and playing cards in French. And so, you know, I, I just, nobody actually, nobody actively taught me French. I just yeah, grew you picked up it doing up. it. Right. And it served me well. In, in you know, back in those days, <clears throat> we all know the familiar story about, about uh, you know, French being pressed out of the schools mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and being people here being made to consider French as a liability. We never felt that way in my family for some reason. I'm, I'm not sure how we, how we escaped that, but um, I remember my grandmother, uh, you know, one of her mantras was, an homme qui parle deux langues vaut deux hommes, you know, a man who speaks two languages is worth two men. Right. Uh, and, and so there was always a sense of, of, of value attached mm-hmm. to being able to um, speak the language of our heritage and speak the language of, uh, you know, that the stories, the family stories and, and, and the lore, the important information, recipes, you know, uh, yeah. uh, 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 history of that land over there, uh, were, they were all transmitted in French. And so it was considered important to be able to, mm-hmm. to participate in that. Anyway, in any case, <clears throat> um, this is a long story, but, but, Stick with it; <laughs> it's worth it, I think. So, I, I, you know, when I was in when I was in high school, I weighed 120 pounds, soaking wet, holding a brick. I wasn't going to be, you know, excelling in any sports or anything. And I tried the band, and I was kind of mediocre mm-hmm. at it, you know, at best. But, but when I was in in my, uh, uh, we got access to a French class when I was in the eighth grade. It was French one, and I remember thinking, wow. I can do this. This mm-hmm. is like really easy, you know. Like I already knew the most yeah. of the vocabulary, and there were, there were some negotiations to make because it was France French. But but <laughs> generally speaking, it was it was pretty much the same thing, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a, la table, la chemise, les cheveux. I mean, it was all, and and we already knew how to deal with the verbs, you know. We didn't have to we didn't have to learn what conjugations were. We right. just already did that, you know. Right. J'ai mangé, je mange, je vais manger. You know? So. 
uh, I thought, wow, this is real. All I have to do is figure out how to write, read and write what I already know in my mm-hmm. head. And so it was easy. And I got sent, I got, I got picked to represent, I was at, I went to Cathedral, later Cathedral Carmel High School in Lafayette. I got picked in my first year to represent the school at the, uh, the literary rally at UL. I won a medal. I had never won anything in my life. And I thought, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like getting paid to eat candy, right? right. It's a, this is easy, and I'm good at it. And mm-hmm. so I figured, you know, I, so I, I took four years of French in high school and went, got a lot of medals. And, and, you know, it was almost like cheating, really. But anyway, <laughs> so <clears throat> I'm getting ready to go to college and uh, wondering, okay, you know, you have to pick a, na- a major. Uh, what, are you gonna, where, what direction are you going to go? My dad was encouraging me to uh, to take up math. Or I was really I was good in math too, and sciences. And he said, you know, once you you know look at the engineering or something. And I get to UL and I said, there's a you could major in French. I thought, what? Right. <laughs> oh, this would be wait. easy. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to be a piece of cake. Well, it wasn't a piece of cake necessarily, but but you know. When you when you have that much momentum already, mm-hmm. so I um, I majored in French, and uh, I learned a lot about you know France and and mostly France I guess and literature and although we had a couple of teachers even back then in I started um, UL in '69 graduated from high school and started. And in the early 70s, we already had Jose Phillips and Virginia Koenig and a few professors at UL who had already become interested in the Frenchness of this place. Mm-hmm. One, of the, one, of the, uh, one of the things we studied, for example, back then was um, a confession by a, French, a recent French immigrant uh, back in the 1800s who had killed a storekeeper in Scott with his brother. And they had gotten caught, eventually got caught, and he wrote out his confession in French. Mm-hmm. And, and we had that text, and so we were reading this. And, and it, you know, it was being treated as a literary text because it was written in French. But, um, but then uh, I spoke to my dad about it. I said, this happened in Scott. You know, it was uh, Marta Begno, and he said, and my dad said, "Oh yeah, we remember that talking about that. You, know, Marta Begno, got killed, uh-huh. and these two these two Blanc brothers uh, got hanged in Lafayette." Wow. What? The hell? I said, you know about this? It's like a novel. And he said, oh, "Yeah, a lot of people know about this." And so I he I went to interview, yeah, I went to interview uh, Mr. Raggio and a few other uh, people in Scott who had. Active memories, and my mm-hmm. uncle uh, Saul Benoit, who had active memories of the aftermath of that story. Wow! So I, I accidentally did an oral history interview. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't know that's what it was, uh, you know. And then, you know, later in my career, I did thousands of them, but I didn't right. know that's that's what I was doing. But I just was, I was just heard that there were some people, real living people. Right. Who had information? Who had who had, you know, um, uh, memories mm-hmm. of what we were reading about? Now I brought this to class, and the, and the, my professor said, "Wow, that is really cool. Why don't you do your paper on that aspect of it? You know, what people remember this." <clears throat> so all, that to say, there was already you know that that 
window opening, yeah. of not just Fr- French, but this French. Not mm-hmm. o- not just French culture, but this French culture. This region, culture. this culture. And yeah. so, you know, I, I, was, I was obtaining a sort of an orientation toward mm-hmm. Louisiana. I have to ask, <clears throat> when you were growing up, um, did your family speak about the Acadians? Did y'all talk about that? I a mean, bit. I know you were right on the cusp of this yeah. really becoming mainstream when you yeah a bit not much though we we this is something that you know my generation of of students who were coming around in in the late 60s early 70s robert dafford and others were Uh, all over this yeah uh uh Carl Brasa, mm-hmm. Richard Guidry, all you know, the, our, our Zachary Richard, our mm-hmm. generation of of performers and right. and young scholars were becoming interested in like in the question like who are we? How did mm-hmm. we get this way? How did the you know why does gumbo taste like that? Why why does our music sound like that? Why do our houses look like that? And we started just curious out of curiosity just sort of teasing back going back into history discovering the the French the French Canadian influences the French influences the African Caribbean influences just out of curiosity so anyway I, I graduate from UL and I decided I wanted to go to graduate school and uh I I applied to several graduate. I needed an assistantship. I didn't have, you know, my, my father's a barber, my mother's a beautician, and so we didn't have a bunch of money to do this. I had to go somewhere where I would get an assistantship, and I got an assistantship. Uh, I got accepted and an assistantship offer uh, in several places, and one of them was Indiana University. I read about that, and that's renowned, right, for its folklore uh, program. But I didn't know that there was such a thing. Oh, okay. I, I, got, I went to, into the French program. I got I accepted into the French program, okay. but I got there <laughs> the first semester. I took you know several classes, and I realized that their all of their French classes were very France oriented. Mm-hmm. Like there was not much, no interest at, pretty much at all, except for this one professor, uh, Emil Snyder, who uh, had who was the first professor in America to develop a course on. French literature, not from France, and it was on African, French African literature. Mm-hmm. I took that class. I thought, oh wow, again, a, you know, a, an opening, right? Yeah. It doesn't have to be France; it can be French. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but I, I realized that I was I was not in the right place because all the rest of the classes were very, very hard focused on France. So, by the time I got to graduate school. I had already worked on the first festival. You had? That was in 1974, I graduated. Right? I finished my coursework in 73, December of 73. And that next spring semester, UL only had a spring graduation. So that next I was sort of waiting. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I had, I had um, participated with a, a, a girlfriend of mine at the time. Uh, she was at the uh, Colby College in Maine. She had to do a, a, a January study plan. And independent study plan, and she came down, and we collected storytellers. We went to visit and, and record storytellers, uh, and I thought, "Wow, this is really cool, right? This is the yeah. way to get at it." And around the same time, I met Dewey Balfa. Can I tell you the story? It, it's, yeah. it's worth it. Okay, it, it and leads people directly, may not know who that is. It, yeah, it, it leads directly to the festival. So when out uh, in, in 1972, 73, my my. Uh, the, the academic year, 7273, I spent in France. I had a scholarship to study at the University of Nice. And 
the, the spring semester of 73, I was so homesick. I was just miserable. I was, you know, and I couldn't put my finger on what, what is it? Like, I mean, what, I'm in France. Mm-hmm. I, I can speak French. I, you know, and, and the, the coursework was going really great. Uh, in fact, I, got, I completed two levels in one year, which was the first time they remember doing that. So coursework was going great. But I, I felt homesick. I felt some, something profound was missing, couldn't put my finger on it. And I was walking down the street of downtown Nice one day, and I saw a poster on the wall that said, Roger Mason chante la musique de la Louisiane. I thought, what? What is this? And it was in this Maison de la Jeunesse et de la Culture. So I went. It was kind of like a community center. So I thought, I'm going to go see this thing. And so I went that Saturday night, and as I'm getting ready to buy a ticket, I hear the Crowley two-step wafting oh up the gosh. steps, play, being played on the accordion. That's what you missed. A really simplified version of the Crowley two-step. And I remember thinking, that's it. That's it. That's what's missing. That's mm-hmm. what I miss. Mm-hmm. And I threw some money at the lady behind the, you know, the, the cashier. I said, I don't want a ticket. I don't want to cha- any change, and I don't want anybody getting my way. <laughs> I ran down there and had a magnificent evening, just hot bath, you know, of of my culture. Yeah, right. Isn't I, that I something? Went to, I went to meet the guy afterwards, and I, I introduced myself, and I said, you know, you'll never know what this did for me. And so I said, who, what, who are you? How did you learn this stuff? And he said, he was an army brat who had traveled all over the world, grown up all over the world, but he had become interested in in folk music and uh, sort of the counterculture movement. And he had he had gone to Louisiana and uh, learned from Dewey Balfa and Nathan Apshire and a bunch of other people. <clears throat> Dewey Balfa, uh, among others, was one of the people that had been identified by Ralph Rensler in 1964, nine years earlier, uh, and had been uh, invited to participate in the Newport Folk Festival in 64, and again, several years after. In Canada? <clears throat> in, no, in Newport. In Newport. In Newport, yeah, Newport, Rhode Island, Newport oh, Folk Festival. Me. okay. He was, he, they were playing alongside Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Buffy St. Marie okay. and all of the, you know, Pete Seeger. And all these folk singers, yeah. okay. And so <clears throat> he had worked with Ralph Rensler. Dewey had become, Dewey had become much more than just a musician. He'd become curious about, you know, about his own culture and, mm-hmm. and what could be done to make people here feel proud of mm-hmm. what we have instead of ashamed of it, you know. So <clears throat> this is 64. I'm there in 73. Uh, Roger has gone to Louisiana in 70 and learned from Dewey and all these people. So when I met him, he said, oh, you're from Louisiana. You must know some of the people I learned from, like Dewey. But I said, I don't know any of those people. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I had studied French. I had studied a little bit about Louisiana French, a little bit, but I didn't know any of those folks, you know. He laughed. He said, look, if you, if you want to know something about this, when you get back home, you know, go to Basile, Louisiana, mm-hmm. and, you know, get directions to Dewey Balfour's house and talk to him, and he'll, he'll bring you in you know, on wow. what's going on. Uh-huh. I did. When I got back home that summer, <clears throat> uh, I didn't have a way of calling him. I didn't know how to get in touch with him. So I drove to Basile, got some, got got directions to his house. Oh my gosh! And knock knock. Knock on the door. Cold, 
And this he nice, was home? Yeah, this nice you know, middle-aged man uh, uh, answers the door. <laughs> I said, are you Dewey Balfa? He said, yes. I said, well, my name is Barry. And I was saying, I was just in these. And I heard from we blah, 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 <laughs> you know, talking 300 miles an hour. And he stopped. I remember him saying, oh, oh, oh <laughs> calm down. Come on in. Come on in. <laughs> and said the spider to the fly. Yeah. And he was, turns out, he explained later, he was happy to have somebody from here mm-hmm. come and see him to because get it. he had always he had had Ron and Faith Stanford and and uh, and Roger Mason and Harry and Ralph Rensler and all these people from outside come. Yeah, but but he you they know, saw the they value, always went away. But they saw the value. Yeah, they did. But the they, local but, people. But then they went away. Right. And he figured, oh, he's this guy's from Lafayette. He's going to stick around. Uh-huh. So come on in. And so we started talking. We started working together. And we start. And by then, I was uh, interested in continuing to collect stuff. So we, he helped me with that. And and uh, it was it was um, during the spring of seventy four, fall of seventy three, spring of seventy four. Uh, we started having this conversation. I was working for Codafil. Jimmy DiMaggio wanted to have a some sort of public performance, public thing uh, for some 150 visiting French journalists. And Dewey started working on him to because Jim, Jimmy DiMaggio had always said he didn't like Cajun music or Creole really? music. Okay. Yeah, he was a jazz buff, mm-hmm. and he had only heard Cajun music poorly played. Mm-hmm. And Dewey said, Dewey told him that he said, you've, "It's because you've only heard it poorly played. If it's well played, you, you know, it's it's as good as anything else." And so Dewey had his fiddle in the car, and he played for him. And Demandre said, "I've never heard Cajun music like this. This is beautiful." And so we convinced Jimmy Demandre to put on a special concert in honor of these, or for you know, for these 150 French-speaking journalists who were having a convention in Lafayette. And at first, it was just going to be a small mm-hmm. kind of workshop thing. For them, yeah. Yeah, and then we started hearing a buzz and said, well, you know, why wouldn't we invite the public? Why mm-hmm. wouldn't we? So the next thing you know, it's going to be in, at first, it was going to be in the student union, UL. Then it was going to be in the ballroom. Then it was going to be, you know, Black in the Hyman Center. Then it was going to be in Blackham Coliseum because it kept growing. And it was up in Blackham Coliseum. And it but, was a tribute yeah, to Cajun but, music. But I can tell you right now, I was there. And, and why they turned this over to a 23-year-old kid, <laughs> I cannot begin to understand. Because you were enthusiastic. But I was working with Dewey Balfa, and Ralph Rinsler, who was now at the Smithsonian by then, agreed to come and, you know, and, and help us conceptualize the thing. And so I had a lot, you know, had a lot of help with this. But, uh, and Reven Reed and Paul Tate and a lot of local people were participating. Mark Savoy, a lot of local people were participating in conceptualizing it, too. And we ended up putting on this concert that was held March 26, 1974, in Blackham Coliseum, a Tuesday night, mm-hmm. raining cats and dogs. A Tuesday At that point, night. nobody's getting any, nobody's getting paid a, a dime. Wow. None of the musicians. Oh, really? Nobody, no, it, they were just coming were to do it. Were they thrilled to be a part of it? Yeah, they, uh, no, nothing like this had ever been done, uh-huh. ever been tried. And so <clears throat> what we did was we put on... And this is Dewey talking, you know, we need to do this where it looks like a concert instead of a dance. Can't let, we have to do it where people can't dance. Trap them in their seats so they listen a different way. Because this was kind of a new uh, <laughs> offering, right? <laughs> totally counterintuitive no to most people, Yeah. right? So we do this in Black Grass. 
we had we didn't have a way of knowing that anybody would come, including the musicians, for that matter, because it was raining cats and dogs, foot of, foot of water on Johnson Street, thunder and lightning. And I'm thinking, you know, if this doesn't work, I'm going to have to leave town. They're going to ride me out on a rail because DiMaggio's sticking his neck out. Yeah. And they got 150 French-speaking journalists who are going to write about this fiasco if it's a fiasco. Well, <clears throat> it turns out... I. I wish I could claim to be clever enough to have predicted this, but I did not. I was totally surprised as much as anybody else. Blackham Coliseum has a, a, a capacity of 8,400 people. There were easily 10 to 12,000 people oh in there. Oh my gosh. It was standing room on flooded. The floor was flooded. The aisles were flooded. It was way beyond fire code. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. And, and uh, oh it gosh. turned into. What a, what a an dream. event. Yeah. It turned into an event. We, we only meant to do it that one time, hoping enough people would come so it didn't look too bad. It, well, it looked, ended up work, looking pretty good. Side note, the 150 journalists are being brought in buses, and we've reserved chairs for them on the floor, and there's those empty chairs, and the place was packed, yeah. pouring down raining. People are waiting under, under umbrellas to come in, and the place is packed. There's those 150 chairs, very obviously not, mm-hmm. not occupied, and so and we were slightly late getting started. It was supposed to start at seven and was get to be seven ten, seven fifteen, and and you could sense people are wondering, where the hell, what's going on, what the hell, and uh, and then the journalists who had been stranded by the weather finally got there. They started getting escorted in. We show them to their chairs, and everybody in the crowd realized. If those chairs get filled, we'll get this thing started, right? So they see the chairs starting to get filled. They all start clapping. The journalists thought they were clapping for them, and they were waving to everybody. That's funny. <laughs> what and an exciting anyway, night. It was, a, it was just a, a magic night. And it was <clears throat> it was called Cajun music, though. That was what Cajun you called Creole. it. Mm-hmm. Cajun and Creole Cajun, Cajun in 1974. Creole 1974. And uh, we used uh, Jimmy C. Newman's... Uh, Popularity with a song called Lash Pala Patat, which was a big deal, you know, pop song, uh, popular song back then. We used them that to get the crowd. But while they were there, we we let them hear Dennis McGee and Sadie Corville and Nathan Abshire and mm-hmm. a lot of other stuff that they would have never, they probably would have not chosen to come and see. <clears throat> it turned out to be a moment. Um, Wow. It, you know, and you can't predict those things. You can't set those up. They, they just are. Or they aren't. Were you a musician? No. You played the triangle, though. I, yeah, I did. <laughs> I played guitar too, but I would have never done it in front of people. So you didn't really think of yourself I, as a musician. I, no, no, I was just facilitating this. Mm-hmm. Now, so what we did, what we did that was remarkably different. In addition to doing it in a place where people couldn't dance, what we did was we put it up on a four foot high stage with a with a state of the art sound system. People had never heard you know, local, you know, Cajun and Creole music that way. You, when you heard, when you heard the stuff, it was in a, it was in a, a dimly lit, smoky dance hall with mm-hmm. with low ceilings and you know, right. And everybody was dancing, so they could really hear the nuances of this. Yeah. So now it's up on a pedestal, mm-hmm. literally, with a good sound system, and you can actually hear the stuff. And we were very, very careful to pick musicians who could really do it. You know, a, a lot of those musicians had had 
experience playing, be it they had been invited to the National Folk Festival or the Smithsonian mm-hmm. or the Brandywine Mountain Music Convention or the Chicago Folk Festival. They had experience doing that. Right. They 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 had not they had not only played for dances, they had played for concerts, mm-hmm. which was a different thing. I have a question. <clears throat> so I know Codafil was um, started to promote, you know, French, the language of France, or the, the French language, but was it also set up for the the cultural aspects, or was it your encouragement in particular that well, got Mr. DiMaggio to see this benefit? He he he. They got the they got the the value of this to a certain extent, but especially with the teaching aspect, mm-hmm. they felt like they needed to teach standard French, and we kept saying, "It's not either or. It's." It's not this or that. It's this and that. Mm -hmm. And there's a way to use, to validate the local French alongside. And he Mm -hmm. knew that was not seen at first. But by 1980, the message got across. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, getting back to um, Dewey Boffa, how did he know this? Well, one way he knew it, you know, Dewey had never played anything but dances either until 1964. Gets invited to the Newport Folk Festival. He's up there playing, and he was he's up there with Vinus Lejeune and um, Gladys Thibodeau. It was a trio. Accordion, fiddle, and guitar. Dewey was up there as a guitar player. He was a last-minute replacement on guitar. Hmm. Imagine if he if the other guy had gone, we, Dewey, Dewey Boffa wouldn't have had that experience. Who knows what would have happened. Right. Anyway, he's up there, and they start playing the first song. Every They're, they're playing a concert. Oh, it's about you know, 125, 150 people sitting in front of them listening. And they start playing, and Dewey told me during the first song, he looked at Vines, who was on the fiddle, and he said, we're, we're not, this is not going well. Nobody's dancing. <laughs> and, and, you know, they were really, you know, uh, they were uh, intimidated. They were... Uh, not feeling like it really wasn't going well. And at the end of that first song, which was recorded, by the way, and I have a recording of it, and oh you can gosh. hear what happens, the crowd erupts in applause. And Vines looks at Dewey and he said, what are they doing? <laughs> he had never heard. It, people, musicians from around here who played dances, Saturday night dances, nobody ever applauded. They did. You danced. Really? You just danced, and then when the dance was over, you escorted your lady back to the table and asked somebody else, and you know, but there was no applause. And this was a polite audience. Yeah, so, but now, now these people were bursting into spontaneous applause, mm-hmm. and Dewey told me, he said, the first time I heard that, I was addicted. <laughs> I had to have it again. I had to hear it again. I wanted to know. I wanted to learn what does that, what produces mm-hmm. that. And he, it, it caused him to examine this new context how do you relate to that kind of crowd? And he got immediately really good at it. He realized that these people wanted to know what is, where is this from? What's mm-hmm. this about? And so he learned how to talk to them between songs. Mm-hmm. He lear- and he learned, you know, that they were interested in, you know, maybe a little fancier fiddling, a little tighter arrangement. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> uh, just for an example, when, when, in, in a traditional dance hall context, you always ended a dance with a waltz to give the couples one last chance to dance close together. 
But a concert, you don't end with a waltz. You end with a rousing two-step to, to have that you know, last big applause at the mm-hmm. end. Mm-hmm. So they, they were learning tricks. They were learning how this works. And they brought that back home. They had been doing that since 64. 74 was our first concert. So they had 10 years of experience figuring out. So by the time that 74 concert happened, we had some seasoned yeah, you vets. Yeah. <laughs> we had, they knew what they were doing. So that first tribute was really the immediate predecessor to festival. We only meant to do it. We only meant to group. do that one concert. Uh-huh. And but afterwards, we all looked at you and said, "Oh, we obviously, you know, touched something here. Right. Touched it. Right. We got to do this again." So, so you we, were like um, not even your mid twenties yet. Yeah, I was twenty three. Mm-hmm. So the next year, it, we did it again. Actually, Keith Cravey did it because I was at grad, in graduate school. <laughs> and then the third year, 76, uh, I came back, I got, I finished graduate school. I came back and there was no plan to do it again. I came back in the spring, and, and the, but the spring had already passed. And I said, What are y'all nuts? We got all this momentum going mm-hmm. and you're not going to do, to keep this going. And so in 76, uh, 75 was in Blackham Coliseum again, and they had a, a, a quite a bit of trouble keeping people from dancing that year, especially when Clifton Chenier played. <laughs> <laughs> so <clears throat> Jimmy DiMaggio said famously uh, about Clifton Chenier, when this man plays, you need barriers. <laughs> <laughs> what a talent. Yeah, so uh, 76, uh, we decided that we were going to do it again, that the point had been made, about listening, and we were going to move outside, oh. and we went to Gerard Park in on the amphitheater near the mm-hmm. swimming pools, mm-hmm. and it happened in uh, in uh, October of '76, and then '77 we went <clears throat> uh, back to the spring uh, in April, I think, and uh, and it became an annual event. And in 77, I think, or 8, it, we joined forces with the Bayou Food Festival and Native mm-hmm. Crafts Festival and mm-hmm. turned it into the conglomerate mm-hmm. that we call Festival Zacadien. A lot of times uh, people wonder, why is it in the plural? Festival Zacadien Creole is in the plural. It's because initially it was a, a co-op. Right, I read of, that. Of and, previously independent festivals. And it became like a nonprofit, a true organization mm-hmm. that could be sustained. I want to get into this um, I love the background, though. Thank you for sharing that, because a lot of us just don't have that background that there was really nothing until right before festival got started. There was just nothing organized. I think a lot of us just have been unaware. We take it for granted. Barry. Yeah, I mean, there was something, but it was n- not much more than what happened in, in a bunch of local dance halls. Yeah, it was right. good, but it wasn't... It wasn't celebrated. And, you know, the other thing, the important thing, <clears throat> we were all concerned doing... Under Dewey's tutelage, we were, we all were concerned about this being passed on, mm-hmm. the, you know, continuing to the next generation. And the problem was, if you know, the only place you could hear it was in a dance hall, you had to be of legal drinking age to get in. So, little five year old kids and six year old kids couldn't go with their parents and grandparents and see how much their parents and grandparents loved this. Mm-hmm. It was it wasn't a family experience, but with the outdoor festival uh, context. This brand new, brand new way of, of presenting mm-hmm. the music. <clears throat> the whole family could go, extended family, and the little kids could see how, you know, yeah. this was 
And they a take to that thing. too. They yeah. take to that dancing and, yeah. and celebrating. Well, I want to get more into the festival. If, if we may, though, I'd like to pause um, during each show. We listen back to a clip that we've done previously. And this clip we're going to play is with uh, Steve Fian, uh, director of Festival International. And just like Festival Acadiana Creole, he talks about the impact these festivals have on our region, economically, tourism, all the things that really make a successful event actually lift up all of our region. So I'd like to thank this moment. Uh, it's made possible by FACET. FACET offers career transition services and executive coaching and has done so for 40 years. FACET provides direction and individualized career strategies and uses a personal strengths inventory to place people in positions that allow them to flourish. For more information, please visit facetgroup.com. Well, that, was, that was part of the design when, um, when the organizers moved it to the weekend that we do it. It's mm -hmm. the first weekend of Jazz Fest. So the thought behind it was exactly that. People can come down, mm -hmm. they can come to Festival International, then they have a week to kind of travel yeah. and see, see the, the state, state and yeah. then go see Jazz Fest on right. the following week. Which is also a don't miss. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've got a lot of good things going on here that time of year. And, you know, another part of this that can't even be measured in, the, in any sort of economic impact study, but... When we organize for groups to come in, we're not just putting music on a stage. We're coordinating with, you know, last year, for example, we work with LIDA, mm -hmm. we work with Le Centre International, the International Trade Center. In fact, Philippe Gustin yeah. is one of festival's founders. He was back right, right yeah. at the table at the beginning, the first so, meeting. So last year, one great example was, if, um, if you remember, we had these, the Chinese drum and dance group. Well, there's a new direct flight from China to Houston now. So Chinese tourists are starting to travel to Houston, oh. and they're taking I-10 going oh, right all the way here. to Florida. Yeah. So we were working with LCVC mm -hmm. and La Santa International to try to figure out how to put Lafayette on the map to bring some of these tourists here. So we got that group, and we had some support from uh, some of the Chinese um, you know, business people. Mm -hmm. And So those are the types of discussions that... Uh, most people never hear about right but or know about I, I hadn't heard that right so yeah. when we book groups it's so it, there are a lot of collaborations mm -hmm. going on and you know with Lita you know Greg Gotra invites business leaders yeah. to come here during festivals so it's the behind the closed mm -hmm. door so you have the celebration going on in the streets and in downtown but behind closed doors there's business deals and, and right. you know there's there's a lot of things happening right. so we want to be strategic with what we do so that we are truly Welcome back to Discover Lafayette with Berian Soleil, founder of Festival Acadiana Creole. So we're now in 1977-78. Y'all have had a few short years under your belt, and it's now becoming an event. And Codafil is still sponsoring it at that point. Did it cost a lot to put this on? The musicians sure. were paid? I mean, how did all that come together? I mean, at that point, the musicians were being paid a pittance. Mm -hmm. they, want, they, they wanted to do it because it was their festival. They felt like it was their festival. And they actually, I think they still do. You know, most, <clears throat> unfortunately, we can't afford, because it's a free festival for one thing, uh, uh, to pay the musicians what they sometimes, some of them would make on the road. But they continue to, you know, they consider this the home game, like, you know, the homecoming. And uh, it, uh, musicians really see this as their festival, and, and I'm happy they do. And, and, and it's that time when 
when they're not scattered on the road, they're all in the same backstage on Gerard Park. And they could see each other and, and talk and interact and, and maybe join each other on stage. And stay, you know, it's, it's a really, it's like a, it's like a family reunion. So they want to be included every year. The ones that participate. Oh, there's, there's, there's so many bands. There's too. so much pressure, so much pressure to play on that stage. It's mm-hmm. unbelievable. We ended up expand. We used to have one stage, then we developed a second stage, and now we developed a third stage. Mm-hmm. I live uh, right by Gerard <clears throat> Park, as you know, and I mean, when it is going on, it's just so beautiful. You can hear it. You can hear the fun and the music all around. And uh, it's we, been there the whole time. It stayed at Gerard Park in, throughout uh, the years. Since 76, yeah. Uh-huh. Now, we, you know, we just heard from Scott Feehan. Mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> Festival International is a magnificent event. It really, you know, such a, a tremendous uh, addition to Lafayette culture. And it is oriented toward making the connections that Lafayette has with the rest of the French-speaking world and other mm-hmm. cultures. Our festival is more of a self-celebration, more inward, mm-hmm. turned inward, uh, self-celebration. Like and, you said, homecoming. Yeah, and yeah. and what it what ends up happening is that we get together, and then visitors get to see us get together, mm-hmm. <laughs> and and participate in right. in what we're doing. It, it, it it's a lot of love, you know, a lot of um, a lot of emotion. Um, we, we've had some really remarkable moments through the I'm, years. I'm curious, you were so young when all this started, and you were, I guess, working on your advanced education. You stayed involved with the festival through all that? I did. You did? So you weren't a musician, but you became a promoter of sorts to get this going, to get the bands Yeah, I, f- I, I, and... I considered myself more of a sort of a f- facilitator. Yeah, <laughs> You know, yeah. just to help organize the thing and make it happen. Right, right. Around the same time, <clears throat> now, though... Know, this ended up turning into... A career for me at, at when I got to UL in '77, back, back from graduate school, they hired me, and and what I was interested in doing is paying attention to our Louisiana French couple. Mm-hmm. It wasn't just French; it was this French, right? You know, these French stories and these French songs and this French, you know, cultural expression. So, <clears throat> how did that happen? Well, it didn't happen. It didn't happen through the French program at IU. After that, during that first semester, you remember I remember saying, uh, "This is not. I, right. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to finish the semester, but I'm going to regroup and 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 rethink this because because I'm, I'm what I'm interested in is is our uh, our French." When Ralph Rensler was working, helping us with that first festival in '74. He gave me. He found out I was going to school, and he found out I was going to Indiana. He gave me his card, and he said, while you're there, uh, <clears throat> go and see my friend Henry Glassy. He's somebody, he, you know, a folk, folklorist that he had met working on all of his stuff. He's in the folklore program there. And I didn't know what that was. I didn't know there was such a thing. So <clears throat> one day during that semester, first semester, I remembered Ralph's card, and I thought, you know, I really ought to go do this, you know. Uh, next time I see him, I want to be able to say, yeah, I did it. And uh, so I, I looked up the address and I went in, Folklore Institute. And uh, and <clears throat> when I, I went in, I said, is, is there some guy named Henry Glassy here? Well, I didn't know that Henry Glassy was one of the preeminent American folklorists. <laughs> well, 
It's like doing golf. I don't know. It it, would have been like going into the Collège de France and saying, is there some guy named Levi Strauss here? (laughs) I mean, it was that big. I heard somebody chuckle. His secretary went, (gasps) I know. And I heard somebody chuckle in the next room, and he said, who's that? And I said, said, my name is Barry Onsley. I'm from Louisiana. And Ralph Rensler said to come by. And he said, oh, come on in. So I go in. And he said, uh, so you're from Louisiana, you know Ralph? I said, yeah. We, we worked on a, a music festival together. And he said, uh, wow, he said, if you're from Louisiana, you, you must know Dewey Balfa. <laughs> and the first, when Roger Mason asked me that, I said, no, I didn't. And, and when Henry asked me all these years later, I said, yes. I do. Yes, I do. I do. I'm I'm not, last time somebody asked me that, I had to say no. Yes, I do. <laughs> and so we got to talking, and, and I told him about how I was frustrated with the program. He said, it sounds like you need to be in the folklore program. And I said, I don't know what that is. And he said, well, this is what we do here. So I transferred. That's the first you'd heard of that. Yeah. I transferred to the folklore program. And as the rest, as they say, is it fit like the French did. Huh? It, it fit. Because they were interested in the stories, in, in the cultural yeah. side of things. Yeah. And so I continued to take courses in the French program, but my major shifted mm-hmm. to folklore. And I got an MA in folklore from Indiana. I interviewed Dr. Joshua Caffrey yeah. a while back, and one I know that students. you're yeah, a student. I know you've written a foreword to one of his books, and I know you've worked together. I was proud to have d- d- oh. directed his dissertation. Yeah, and he taught at Indiana University. That's where I first learned about the <clears throat> folklore program. But when you learn how to be a folklorist, do they, do they teach you how to listen? Is that what you're saying? You told me the most important thing you can do is listen. Yeah. But well, to, it, ha- to capture that story, is that what they teach you? Basically, what yeah. What they teach Whatever you is, the story is how to identify the, sto- you know, the... The key elements? The, of- the, the cultural elements that uh-huh. are important, how to examine them, how to compare them, how, you know, how they, how, how to... Put them in the in a larger international mm-hmm. context. So it's not just writing; it's really <clears throat> prioritizing and and capitalizing. Well, they teach you how to do field work uh-huh. and and what to do with that field work. You know, uh, my my mas- my master's thesis was on um, Cajun and Creole stories that I recorded. Came back and you know mm-hmm. on when on my trips back home. I would go and record Mrs. Evelia Boudreau or Ben Guiné or you know any number of dozens and dozens of storytellers. Aren't <clears> if you anybody glad knew me, anybody knew me back then, they would have more known my work with the festival uh-huh. and the musicians because it was so public. What was really drawing me, mm-hmm. you know, was this other side of storytelling. And the first book I did was of was was about musicians, but it, it was them telling their stories about how they learned and where they mm-hmm. came from, how they grew up and the dances and, and their influences. And you know, it was uh, mm-hmm. called uh, Makers of Cajun and Creole Music. I did with uh, Elmore Morgan. Oh, my gosh. It's and, just amazing how all yeah. this started coming together, though, in the late 70s. Like, I know you were onto it. Others were onto it. But it really just exploded. Yeah, Zachary It seems Richard. like the music is what made it explode. It is. Zachary Richard and Michael Doucet mm-hmm. and, a few, and other, you know, young musicians at the time, uh, we were all getting in, in interested. Richard Guidry uh, was a, a, a more of a linguist, uh, uh, Amanda LaFleur. There, there was a, Carl Brasso was a historian. We were all, mm-hmm. uh, you all had various, you know, 
pre- uh, preparation or, or yeah. you know, formation. And, and we were all coming at it from all these different mm-hmm. angles. Mm-hmm. And we were in touch with each other, talking to each other about like, oh, yeah, well, I just found this out. Oh, wow, it, it explains this too. It was a, it was a, a fascinating thrilling time. Did you meet Beausoleil, like Michael Doucet in that group, through the festival? No, Michael Doucet and I graduated from high school together. You did? Yeah. Because I know you got to tell the quick story about you driving up in your 1963 <laughs> Chevrolet pickup to yeah. the White House, right? It, well, yeah. With we, Beausoleil. I mean, yeah, we, we uh, uh, because of Ralph Rensler, <clears throat> uh, when Jimmy Carter got elected, uh, he asked, his campaign people asked, uh, Ralph Rensler and the and the, uh, the Smithsonian American Folklife Program to organize a sort of grassroots celebration because who Jimmy Carter was, right. he asked him to, to organize a grassroots celebration as part of his inaugural, and um, it was in the Library of Congress and a, a few other places. But uh, anyway, uh, Ralph by then this is seventy seven. Ralph and I had several years of working on the festival and we had gotten to know each other. We were working on a number of things and uh, we, um, Ralph was, you know, his, his inclination would have been to invite Dewey Balfa and that generation that he knew. And I said, why not use this opportunity to make a statement Mm -hmm. about the fact that this is, this is being um, passed along to the next generation. And he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, there's this, there's some young groups that are playing this stuff excellently and and having learned from that mm-hmm. other generation, exactly those people, from Dennis McGee and Dewey and Nathan and all, and Ken Ray and all those people. And uh, so <clears throat> we got the first version of Beausoleil uh, invited to play the inaugural were they known beyond our region at that point? I mean, that probably put them on the uh, map. They hadn't started touring a lot yet. They, mm-hmm. uh, they, right around the same time, got invited. Seventy-seven. It was. Uh, I think it might have been seventy-six. Uh, they got invited to to uh, perform in France. So yeah, there was. It was starting to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it was starting to happen. And you played. <clears throat> And you participated. I played the triangle. Is that hard to play? Just because I was there, I was, (laughs) I was really there to present them. Be me on the kazoo. (laughs) (laughs) I was there to present them and and you know give some context to the crowd. Uh, But you know I had a triangle. Yeah. uh, How were they received? It was people were astonished to hear young people playing that music. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh. It was uh, the the Richard brothers, Kenneth and Sterling, and Michael Doucet, Bessel Duyon on accordion, and Bruce McDonald on guitar. And it was it was a really fabulous group. Uh, and while we were there, <laughs> while we were there, Ralph Rensler had offered to donate a copy of the fieldwork tapes that he had made in the 60s. Uh, <clears throat> they were all on seven-inch reels. And back then, the only way to do that was to run them in real time. He had something in in the neighborhood of 60, 59 tapes, that. 59 yeah. tapes. I think it was 59 mm-hmm. tapes. And and uh, Frank Prochan, who worked with the program up there, and I stayed up all night long, two nights in a row, copying, copying all those of those tapes. in real time. And I drove them back to uh, UL. Dewey had said... <clears throat> 
All of these people who come down here from Lomax to Oster to Rensler, all these folklorists who come here, they, uh, Ron and Faye Stanford, all, they, they record with really great stuff. We make, we, we give, we help them make contacts and we, we introduce them to, and then they record all this great stuff, but they leave with they it. They take it. He said, we need to have an archive here. Mm-hmm. We need to, and I said, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm a, I'm a college student. You know, I can't, I don't have money to establish an archive. I can buy more than one tape at a time. He said, but you can buy one tape. I said, yeah. He said, well, buy one tape and we'll re- you know, record that. And when you finish, put it on a shelf. And then you buy another tape. And when you finish that one, put it on the shelf. Mm-hmm. And when those two tapes are together, that's the beginning of an archive. That's how practical right. a thinker he was. Is that so, how the, <clears throat> um, the, uh, the Center University for Acadian, Center for Acadian and Creole Folklore that's how it started. started? That's how it started. So that, you did start it. Yeah, I mean, that was and, you. And, and you know, we, we were just putting stuff on the shelf. And, but right away... I mean, and, and after a while, we were putting a lot of stuff on the shelf because I was doing that full time. But uh, you know, we we were going out to to record uh, Canary Fontenot and and Boisac Art in their houses, and Nathan Abshire and Varys Connor and Lionel Lewis. All of a sudden, you know, the shelves started filling up. But I remembered what Dewey said. You know, I, I said, you know, all of this other previous uh, fieldwork collections are all over wherever the people went. So I, I got in touch with them. I got in touch with Harry Oster. I got in touch with Ralph Rensler. I got in touch with uh, Alan Lomax, who was still alive, and asked them if they would consider donating a copy of their collections so that they would be in one place at mm-hmm. one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, they all they were happy to do it. They were happy that finally there was a place to, a landing spot for them. So anyway, recorded all of uh, Ralph's collection, came and brought, and it was the uh, one of the first ones that we had from outside. Another one we got was um, <clears throat> uh, Alan Lomax's recordings, and I remember when we when we received those are the ones that were done in '34. Right. I remember when we received that collection. Michael Ducey and I were together in in the archives, the third floor of the library at UL, and put the first tape on, and we listened to the first song. And after the first song, I pushed the pause button and I looked at Michael and I said, we're going to have to rethink everything we thought we knew about Cajun and Creole music. Because up to then, all that we had to consider historically were the commercial recordings mm-hmm. that had been you know, wonderfully gathered and reissued through the work of... Um, Chris Strackwitz at Arhuli Records, he had put together these collections of, you know, going back to the 20s and 30s and 40s. And it was great. And you know, we, we had, we, we listened to all the commercial recordings, but Lomax, the Lomaxes in 34, had been visiting people who deliberately, who were not being commercially recorded. So he was, he was visiting people who were old then and singing ballads and, and playing fiddle tunes that went, Way, way farther back. back. Yeah, <clears throat> the the commercial recordings, uh, beginning with uh, Joe Falcon's "Allons à Lafayette" in nineteen twenty eight, the commercial recordings were recording, were were capturing something that was happening right then. Mm. It was it was popular then. The Lomaxes was historical. But, but Lomaxes yeah. were capturing what right. had what had influenced. It's the folklore. That, the yeah. early stuff. Yeah. 
Was he paid by the government? Was it yeah. one of those um, it was the Library depression, of Congress. Yeah, yeah, depression era jobs? Mm-hmm. But I mean, what he did was priceless. Unbelievable. Yeah, you know this like you know the back of your hand. <laughs> I lived it. I know, but I mean, <laughs> I we have not scratched Alan Lomax, the surface. By the way, Alan Lomax was 18 years old, traveling with his father in 1934. So, in 19 whatever it was, 70s. When I got in touch with him, he was him, still pretty he young. He was still he yeah. was still very much active, and uh-huh. and and he was so delighted that that this had endured, that it it, it had penetrated, you know, into, toward the end of the twentieth century. Mm-hmm. In 1934, you can hear him and his father on various recordings tagging onto the uh, what had just been performed, saying, you know, we're we're recording this for the Library of Congress so that it will be able to. It will be there to serve as, you know, inspiration for future generations. Mm-hmm. And he said, we were saying that, but, you know, who knew it was going to happen? Well, it turns out it did. Yeah. Then, here's what the other, the, the, really the kicker, when we, re, when we obtained that, that collection from 34, and Michael and I were listening to it, we said, you know, we need to let young people who are playing today hear this stuff because mm-hmm. it's going to affect them like it's affecting us. Well, they did, and Beausoleil started doing new arrangements of this old stuff, and then Steve Riley and the Mama Playboys, and and the Magnolia Sisters, and it went when we when we found out what was there, they started recycling this stuff. Mm-hmm. Well, this recycling, I don't know, I don't know that a whole lot of people would have happily listened to some you know group of drunks in a bar in Erath that Lomax recorded. But they were ha- really happy to listen to Steve Riley's yeah new and improved new and improved version. <laughs> and so I played. I did this for Lomax. I played it for Lomax, and he said, "Oh my God, it worked! Mm-hmm. <laughs> the experiment worked." And he did this all over the country, though it wasn't yeah. just in mm-hmm. Southwest Louisiana. He was yeah. doing this across yeah. the U.S. But he also. But he said, "But this was a treasure trove." Yes, but he he said when he heard what what was happening here. Uh, I've never heard it work like this anywhere else that we recorded. Really? You know, we, we were hoping that this would happen everywhere, but yeah. it really is happening here. Uh-huh. And so he came in 1980. He, we, he was invited by the Louisiana Folklore Society to give the, the plenary address. And he talked about that. He talked mm-hmm. about, my, you know, we, had, we were hoping, of course, in our wildest dreams, we yeah. were hoping, but, but I, come, I come back here and find that it actually happened. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He was thrilled. It's beautiful the way this this talent has been sustained and grown. I mean, here, we, how many years has this been now? I mean, this is you didn't meet last year, but this has been going on since the late seventies. Yeah, seventy four with the initial tribute. Yeah, and you've got well, I mean, so, dozens you know, of bands. Yeah, what's lined happened? Up. Here, like, would this? When y'all ha- start Friday, would, March eighteenth? Would this have happened? Would this lineup have happened if we? Hadn't done that back in '74, I right? It. I mean, and and one of the things that we we all realized very quickly is you can't force people to do this. You can't, you know, even bring them to a workshop and 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 make them, you know, and get them mm-hmm. to do it. <clears throat> all you can do is make it available and attractive. You know, well played, beautiful sound system, nice stage. And put it out in front of a bunch of people, and event, you know, eventually, some young people are going to be hanging on the front of the stage saying, "I want to do that." Right, right. We have photographs of a young Steve Riley with his elbows on the stage, looking up at Mark Savoy playing, and then 
years later, we have a photograph of Steve Riley playing, and there's some kid yeah. with his elbow on. The, and knows, that's how it happens. Who knows what's going to happen? That's, with right, that's how it happens. So let's let's <clears throat> touch on this, Barry, because um, we're probably going to need to wind down. I, I honestly could do another couple interviews with you. I'm enjoying this so much. <laughs> I'm really enjoying this. So festival. Acadiana Creole starts on um, Friday, March 18th. At and, and we're going back to the spring, the March, because yeah. we had to postpone had to in postpone. 2021. And You'll have when, two this year? Well, yeah, you know? Yes. Okay. When we decided we were going to postpone, I said, okay, well, when are we going to postpone two? I said, well, you know, we started in March yeah. originally. Let's go back to March. It's a great time of year, Yeah, too. and we'll do it from March, but then we're going to go back to October, hopefully, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on a regular basis. And speaking of Steve Riley, he's <clears throat> the first act. Steve yes. Riley and the Mamu Playboys, he's gonna open 530. Up. Uh, at Scene Ma, Louisiana. So this is all at Gerard Park, and it's just chock-a-block full of, well, you know, big-time bands. This, again, is at no charge to the public, but it costs you money to put it on. So right. let's and get we, that in about we, we, we need to support our yes, local we arts often, scene. We often hear that it's a free festival, but it's not free. It no. costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you have to underwrite this <clears> and Yeah, so we best. have corporate sponsorships and we have other things, but... You know, if people who are attending would consider, they're not paying, no, we're not charging admission, but but invest in it. Mm-hmm. Invest in it. Buy a pen, buy a poster, buy our beer, buy, buy you know, go to the food festival uh, and, and, you know, spend some money in the park. That's what enables mm-hmm. the music and the other things that you experience in the park. Yeah. You're going to be there? you hanging out the whole time? I hope I hope I am. Yeah, I know. You know, we're coming up on 50 years. It's just amazing. 2024 is going to be 50 years. Right. Did you have any idea when you were that age <laughs> that you'd still be immersed in this? I had no—nobody had any idea. We, you know, as I said, the first one, we were only intending to do that one concert. And then the second year, we said, well, you know, that went really well. Let's do it again. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Next thing you know, we're doing it every year. Right. Well, I want to encourage people to get online. Uh, you've got a website. If somebody had said to me in 1974, in, ni- in, in 2022, we're going to be done. You'd be thinking, well, no. I mean, no. who would have even thought There are going to be 36 groups involved. No, no. But, no. I mean, the names of the bands, I want you all to get online, people that are listening. I mean, it's everybody from Wayne Tubes, Chubby Carrier, um, so many, so many big name acts. Um, you know, a lot of those people Foss. by now, a lot of those people now have been nominated for Grammys mm-hmm. and won Grammys and and become you know staples on the folk festival music scene. And, right. and they've traveled to Europe. They've traveled. Some of them have traveled around the world. Uh, you know, playing in Thailand and India, and uh, it, it's uh, it's unbelievable. Mm-hmm. It's just amazing. <clears throat> so I guess as I'm winding down, I, I do need to ask. You say you're not a musician. But yet, you have written songs. You've been nominated for a Grammy. You've worked with with bands. Yeah. Did, I, how I, did all that come well, about? I was writing. I was writing poetry just as a you know an outlet, and uh, so so as to not confuse that with the the academic work, scholarly work I was doing on the other side. You know, I, I've, I've written. Uh, almost two dozen books and no, a lot of articles, mm-hmm. and, but that was all academic, you know, stuff. Uh, in order to not confuse that, I, I developed this uh, character. Is that Jean? Jean Arsenault, yeah, yeah. my alter ego. <laughs> that's your middle name, though, Jean. Jean mm-hmm. yeah. And my grandmother was an Arsenault, so that's why that happened. And uh, so I developed this character and uh, <clears throat> was initially writing lyric, you know, uh, poetry, but then it turns out that 
poetry, if it's r- rhythmed and rhymed, uh, can be sung. And mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> uh, Sam Broussard was one of the first. Uh, Steve Riley and 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 uh, and then you know people started asking me. But by the way, <clears throat> I was work- I was doing the the morning show at KRVS way back then, and uh, I had started writing song lyrics for Wayne Toops. And uh, Kevin Nake and mm-hmm. a few other people uh, had recorded, Jambalaya had recorded a few songs. D.L. Menor, D.L. Menor, yeah. one of the greatest Cajun songwriters, La Porta and all that, recorded, recorded three of my songs. And I thought, oh my God, this is like, is better than a Grammy, way better than a Grammy. Anyway, so that had started to happen and uh, people were starting to, Wonder who is this John Arsenal character, right? And I was doing the show uh, at KRVS, and and uh, I ta- I did an interview with myself, <laughs> which I, I would ask a question, and then I would answer it, and I wasn't even changing my and voice. You weren't changing your voice. Yeah, I wasn't even, but it was on the radio, <laughs> so they couldn't see, right? So the the phone lights up when I went to the music. The phone lights up, and so can I talk to this John Arsenal guy? I said, Yes, yeah, hold on, hello. <laughs> Did it I was see, a lot of fun. Did I see a picture of you that maybe Philip Gold did, where it was you and oh, both of Sean us, yeah. Orson? Yeah. I mean, that was you and you. <laughs> yeah. I had a lot of fun with your arsenal. So are you really retired? I know you're not actively teaching, but you seem like you're still keeping you know, your finger in a lot of stuff. I often say my wife gave me a, has, has given me an F in retirement. I'm not doing too well uh, well, extracting retire. myself from that. No. I mean, I'm having a blast. I'm doing stuff I really love. What happened with, with the song lyric stuff is that Sam Broussard, my longtime friend, we graduated from high school together as uh, same class as Michael Doucet and uh, uh, got into, he plays with the Mamo Playboys, and he he got to me. He said, uh, "Hey man," he said, uh, "Stop giving all that stuff away to everybody. Let's do something of our our own." I said, "Like what?" He said, "Well, you know, I, I'll do the music and you do the real lyrics and we'll do something." So I said, "Okay," and I had done that before, but uh, you know, it was always somebody else. So he called me up uh, a few months later, and he says, uh, come listen to what I did. And I want you to sing a few songs. I said, you what? Sing? He said, yeah, I've heard you sing at your house and stuff, you know. And he, uh, mm. Anyway, we went to the studio, and he basically taught me the craft of singing. I, wow. I feel like I owe him tuition. And that was the nominated for the Best yeah, we, Regional Yeah, we ended Roots up doing album, Broken Promise Land. Yeah. yeah. And... Uh, was it fun? It was a, a blast, absolutely. We're doing a second one now. It's called The Devil's Feet. Did you go by Jean or um, <laughs> yeah, Jean, Barry? Jean. <laughs> one of the singer was Barry also, but the songwriter was Jean. Jean. <laughs> <laughs> We're doing one now, uh, tentatively titled uh, Your Heart is Blacker Than the Devil's Feet. <laughs> <laughs> I've been in French, that so sounds really good. Encore plus noir que les pieds du job. And it's got a little gospel thing, pied du job, pied du job. You do sound du good. Pied du job. God. <clears throat> Barry, Barry Ancelet, thank you for taking time today and making me laugh. This is <laughs> it's been a pleasure. Thank you for all you've done, too. I mean, almost 50 years. Again, we, we owe you a big debt of gratitude. Well, thank you, but it, it's been a blast. I've, I've, I've had a blast doing it. I feel like I owe, I feel like I owe somebody money uh, well, for I admission think- to this party. I think that we owe you mainly for not only sharing your love of the culture, but of getting everyone to see the value, you know, that this is a beautiful culture and should be celebrated, should have always been celebrated. If, if that has happened, that's payment enough. I know. We live in a beautiful place. So thank you so much for joining us. And again, 
please, please consider attending Festival Acadiana Creole. And support it. And support it with your dollars, with your presence. Bring your friends and family. And don't bring the ice chest. Yeah, buy, and, buy beverages on site. And, and here we come uh, out of all of this isolation. People are dying to get together. Uh, we're so happy to do it. Let's do it in as safe a way as possible. Please be mindful of keeping everybody uh, in a good place. Right. Couldn't say it better. <clears throat> thank you, Barry. And I want to thank our listeners for being so loyal. You can find uh, our podcast at discoverlafayette.net. Barry Ancelais and about 250 others are online. And even better, or plus, you can subscribe anywhere you get your podcast. And we couldn't do this without our sponsors. I would like to express my gratitude to Oxner, Lafayette General, and our new sponsor, Facet Group, that provides executive coaching. And of course, Raider, and in particular, Jason Sikora, who mixes our tape. Thank you all for making this show possible. On behalf of Discover Lafayette, this is Jan Swift. 